welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in to WBAI today. You were just listening to Let's Talk with John Kane and Regan DeLogans. I've been thinking a lot recently about how the coronavirus has been impacting all parts of our lives, from how we move about uh, to the businesses we go to, how we advocate for causes, because the ad face of advocacy is even changing right now, how we put food on the table. It is just incomprehensible how many facets of our lives are being impacted by the virus. And it can be completely overwhelming when you consume a lot of news, as I do, when you watch the press conferences uh, by the mayor or the governor each day, as you read the newspapers, as you even listen to our shows, uh, or you call in and listen to our dedicated WBAI listeners uh, or our elected officials or health experts. I want to be as uplifting as I can and bring you some hope. And as we move ahead in the weeks ahead, uh, I, I'm making an effort now to start bringing you the voices of those who are making a difference uh, so that... When we emerge from this crisis, we can thank those who who boosted us, who, who provided us with some hope. And in fact, when Reggie just talked about what we're going to be doing uh, later on this evening, uh, I won't personally be singing out loud because I'm not going to put everyone through my voice. Sing it uh, to yourself. I'll sing it to myself. But sing, that is one of my yeah. favorite songs. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it, you know, if you just lip sync, that would, that would, that would it, you know, just show solidarity, Jeff. That is my preferred route. I will. I am one of those people, though, who opens up the window at seven o'clock and does applaud for our essential workers. And so I'm glad, Reggie, that you have consistently reminded our listeners that that is something that they should participate in. And there was one night when I was outside walking the dogs. I had forgotten about this. And suddenly everyone started to cheer. I was the only one on my block with the dogs. The dogs didn't know what was going on. And it actually being in the middle of it outside you know, and if I'm an essential worker, I'm not. But if I was an essential worker, I don't know how I would react because just standing there as a regular citizen and hearing this surround me was just so emotionally moving at that time. So uh, we're going to get to the first guest in a few moments. Reggie, you'll let me know when the guest is on the line. Yep. Uh, you know, just a little about the news. Uh, I'm sure you know, but just in case you are, have not been tuned into the news, uh, it's obvious that Joe Biden is going to be our Democratic nominee. Just in the last few days, he's rolled out a number of endorsements. Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, now Elizabeth Warren. One endorsement he is not going to get is from the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, here in New York, the presidential primary, as you know, was moved from later this month to June 23rd. But as this pandemic continues, it's really unclear if that's going to have to be moved even further or if not, the way we vote, if that's going to change significantly. And I do ask one of my guests later in the show, uh, U.S. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, about this. I suspect that many of us uh, possibly will be voting by absentee uh, or uh, adopt, embracing whatever the new system is so we can participate uh, in this. Uh, we'll certainly we'll be talking about this in the coming weeks. A little bit more about the coronavirus now as we uh, get ready for the first guest. The global COVID-19 cases have surpassed 2 million. And at this point, they're saying over 137,000 people uh, worldwide have passed away from the virus. It continues to just wreck our economy here in the United States. 22 million people have filed at this point for unemployment. And here in New York, the Independent Budget Office uh, says that we could just plunge into a recession like we've not seen since the 1970s. One of the things that's been interesting is to see as we're all holed up inside, 
uh, and barely going out, the majority of us, uh, how this has impacted crime in our city. Uh, there's been one trend that's emerging. The New York Times is reporting, for instance, that with fewer cars on our streets, the re uh, they're seeing the automated speeding cameras have been issuing twice as many uh, speeding tickets daily. But at the same time, governments around the world that have imposed travel restric restrictions and curfews and quarantines are saying that crime has significantly crime and violence have significantly dropped so that's going to bring me to my first guest police commissioner dermot shea he was appointed the city's 44th police commissioner by mayor bill de blasio last december he previously served as the chief of detectives chief of crime control strategies and was the deputy commissioner of operations commissioner welcome to wbai hey jeff how are you good evening it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. I talked a little about Winnie Who's story in the Times uh, that I just happened to catch uh, this afternoon about uh, the you know, speeding violations. But overall, how has coronavirus impacted the NYPD and your workforce? Well, I think, Jeff, first and foremost, I mean, we've, we've suffered uh, as an agency some terrible losses. Um, the human side we always think about first. We've lost 27 members of our department. Um, we've had, we have a lot of people still out sick, but first and foremost, the, the greatest impact is to the um, uniform and civilian and auxiliary members. I mean, we've lost five auxiliaries, people who donate their time day in, day out to keep their fellow citizens safe. Uh, it's just a real uh, sad, sad situation. Um, we're pulling through it. We're all pulling together as all New Yorkers are, and hopefully we get out of this uh, sooner more than later. And I'm glad you said that because as much as I relay the statistics, you know, I, like most everyone, know people who have tested positive, who've been impacted and who have lost loved ones. So, you know, it feels so cold when I just cite the statistics without recognizing that these are people that we know that our neighbors low, low, know and love. So thank you for bringing that up. How what has helped to cut down on the spread of coronavirus within the NYPD? And what are some of the hazards that your members currently are facing? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, first and foremost, the, um, the social distancing at work. I mean, we've done a lot of work internally, which the public doesn't see. But, you know, we're a large agency and how we conducted business, you know, three months ago is certainly not how we're doing it now. And, and you know, it'll be interesting when, when this is all done, how it changes the workplace environment, not just in the police department, but we have uh, thousands of people working from home. We have uh, thousands, currently a little over 6,000 members out sick. And when we uh, lost a few members early on, we, we made decisions to uh, take a pretty aggressive step and grant a number of reasonable accommodation requests that we proactively put out there. People that are um, a little older, people that have pre-existing health conditions. So between our sick, between the um, reasonable accommodations, which are in the thousands, and that's more civilian than uniform, uh, between the working from home, the social distancing, uh, the wearing of uh, personal protective equipment. I mean, it, it has, you know, I start and end every day with uh, conferences but they used to be face-to-face. -face. They're now either video conferences or tele teleconferences. So it, it really has, um, like all businesses, really changed how we are uh, meeting this challenge. And uh, what type of what type of federal support does the NYPD need at this point, particularly support that you've not received yet? 
I, I think we're in good shape. I mean, um, when you look at whether it's local from the uh, mayor's office, I mean, we're, we're always very well resourced when you talk about, um, you know, uh, from the state, from Governor Cuomo or the president and, and our police foundation and, and private entities, Jeff. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of donations that have come into New York City, whether it's EMS, hospitals, uh, the police department, the fire department, with, with companies uh, uh, across the state and country uh, looking to donate personal protective equipment. So in terms of resources, support, I think we've um, been very well helped as the country comes together. I think that the main, the main issue I, I would say right now is how do we get back to normal? Um, does that, is that a testing question? Is that as the entire medical field tries to develop as quickly as possible vaccines, um, antibody tests? I mean, we're waiting anxiously as, as many parts of society are for those things to come to fruition. So you mentioned the human side before, and I do want to give you this opportunity because I saw this on the website and our listeners might not know about it. You have lost some members this week. And uh, you, you, there is something, a feature on the website where people can learn a little more about them. Can you just talk about that and some of those uh, who you've come, who you came to know, who have passed away? I, I could tell you that, um, you know, I, I've spoken to um, loved ones, and it is, it is heartbreaking, to be, to be brutally honest. Um, you, you're talking to parents, you're talking to um, spouses, uh, people that have lost somebody under circumstances that are, um, you know, alien to us, how we, how we normally, um, you know, go through our day. Uh, when you talk about the police department, we've lost 27 members and we always pride ourselves on giving them an appropriate, respectful send-off. Um, you just can't do that right now. Um, we have we have loved ones of people that are very ill um, sleeping outside hospitals because they can't go in to visit their loved ones. Um, it, it is um, you know you you got to push through it. You got to get the job done, but it, it certainly makes it all very tough. I mean, it, and it's not just and this is not just about the police department by any stretch. Um, when you look at other you know we're all in this together and all. New Yorkers are facing really um, terrible losses. And, it, and if it's not um, losing members of your family, and by family I mean your work family, well, think of all our employees that are losing family members. So it, it really has touched everyone. Um, it, it's, it's something I think that's going to have a, a lasting impact on this uh, great city. Uh, it's a unique city. It's the city we love, but we, we've really taken a punch here. But if there's any place that can rebound, I think it's New York. I think it's New Yorkers. We've proven it in the past. We are going to get through this, but it, it sure, sure as heck hurts right now. So obviously, in the last 24 hours, the governor talked about how uh, people will be required. He's going to do this by executive order tomorrow. People will be required to wear masks in public spaces. But in the in the previous weeks, uh, what has been the response as far as the NYPD when it comes uh, to uh, encountering businesses that should have been closed but remained open or people who have intentionally not practiced social distancing in public areas? I, I, uh, we're, we're watching this very closely. We've put um, a significant amount of officers 
reassign them to make sure we address this. We have an app on the phone now that works where we're getting calls right to the phone where they can address these things in a timely manner. I'll tell you, overwhelmingly, if, you, if, you're, if you're driving around New York City, whether it's on the subway or, or walking, biking, if you take driving a car, this is not the New York City that we know. Uh, the streets are really empty for the most part. We had a couple instances a couple weeks ago, and occasionally you'll see a train with a little uh, crowding, but that's by far the exception. Same thing I would say for the parks. Um, I, I think that when you look at the businesses, they were on board very early. We were visiting um, supermarkets. We were visiting bars early on. Then the bars uh, shut down and the restaurants were takeout only, which is the status that they maintain to this point in time, making sure that they're not open, people sitting down. We've had a couple of incidents, um, and when I say a couple, it's really just a few where we've had to uh, break up businesses that were open, um, serving people or, or an illegal social club type of event. But in the city of 8.5 million people, when I tell you it's, it's really been the exception, I'm not exaggerating. By and large, New Yorkers are cooperating. Um, when we see something and we, uh, you know, advise them or educate them, you know, for the most part, they've been more than compliant. So it's really been the exception, pretty rare, actually, when a summons has had to be issued or even rarer when an arrest. Now, we're staying on top of it. We are getting a lot of calls. I will say, though, that sometimes when you see, like going back a week or two and you see a couple people in the park, it's people that live together in the same apartment. So it's not always what you think you're seeing, but we are on top of it. And, and this is the greatest tool right now that we have, uh, riding this out, keeping apart, not spreading. And, and we've been pretty consistent with that message that we need you to stay inside and, and we need you to do it for yourself. We need to do it for your family and, and your loved ones because you really never know who could be the carrier of this terrible, terrible disease. So I just want to thank all New Yorkers for um, being as patient with this tough situation as they have and uh, working so well with our offices. And there's also been debate over releasing prisoners from Rikers beyond those being held initially for lower level crimes. What have been your concerns about the broader releases? Yeah, and I was on record early um, in saying that these are unprecedented times and we have to any decisions we do and there's tough decisions you have to you have to be humane and you, and you always have to remember the human side of this um so yeah when we took a look at um i think you have to recognize that when they say low-level crimes this is what makes it quite frankly very difficult because it, it's not easy to get into and you won't hear this from some people but i'm telling you the truth it's not easy to get into rikers island these days the, the, the population used to be twenty-one thousand. It had been cut to 7,000. We have one of the fewest incarceration rates of a major city in this country. So when you, when you talk about, and you'll hear this thrown around, that low-level offenses, be careful what, what people are telling you, because Rikers Island right now is essentially, if you're in there, uh, you've earned your way in there. And even with that being said, we have to look at who's in there. How much time do they really have? What's their health condition? What's their age? And make tough decisions that we don't want to see anyone die uh, on the island. What, what I was concerned about and still am is that when we're making those tough decisions, and the New York City Police Department has no authority 
for the record, to release anyone from Rikers Island. Um, it simply doesn't exist in, in our job description. But when we're consulted on this and asked, because we tend to know quite a bit about crime in New York City, um, you have to look at the history of the individual, what they're in there for, and before we make wholesale releases, you have to make sure that you're not compounding a problem and making it more dangerous on the outside. Are we releasing somebody to an apartment where there's an individual that they're in there for beating somebody up in, in a domestic case in that apartment? Uh, you know, and things such as that. Is there a history? Where are they going? Is it going to be safer in the long run? So I can tell you that we've had some, some very concerning releases recently that have uh, committed some pretty serious crimes as soon as they got out. And I don't think that's what anyone wants. So, uh, again, I think tough decisions, tough time in New York City. We got we got to make the tough call and we got to do what's right for everyone. And I know we've only got a minute or two left. I, I talked a little about the increase in uh, uh, tickets for people who are speeding. Uh, as far as yeah. crime trends right now, where are you seeing the biggest increases and where are you seeing some of the biggest decreases? We've seen overwhelmingly um, March 12th. You know, if you have to go back a little, and I'll be quick, but from January 1 to March 11th, we, we were having a tough time with crime in New York. And as soon as all these orders went in with nobody on the street now, uh, crime has really taken a significant drop, which, which is good news, since March 12th. With that being said, in the last week, um, the, we always start and end talking about murders. We've had a, 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 a little above-average week in the last week with murders. We've had... Um, couple domestic murders and since this event has started going back to march 12th we've we've seen a pretty significant uptick in commercial burglaries um the good news is that the officers are deployed they're out there they're working based on intelligence and they're making a lot of arrests but what we need is to see some of these burglars it really jeff it really annoys me that in this time when stores are so distraught People are probably going to lose their jobs. It's tough for businesses to stay open, and people are preying on these businesses. So we've made a lot of arrests. What we need is for these individuals to be held accountable. So uh, I've got really just about 30 seconds, and I ask every guest this, uh, and I know we've talked about the uh, loss of life within the department, but on a really personal level, how are you holding up during this? What goes through your mind? How have you been you know, emotionally and psychologically be impacted by coronavirus? It's, uh, we have a job to do, and um, I, there'll be a lot of reflection down the road, probably one day, but um, keeping New Yorkers safe, doing our part, praying, quite frankly, praying for the healthcare workers, as well as all the city workers that are out there in the middle of this, putting themselves at risk, putting their families at risk. Um, so uh, I get through it all with uh, a, a phenomenal team um, that surrounds me that really does the yeoman's work. And, and we have a tremendous amount of support. And let me just thank all New Yorkers for the support, whether it's emails, whether it's letters, uh, that they are constantly pushing our way. Um, it, it truly does lift us up and, and allows us to get the job done. So I want to thank all New Yorkers. Commissioner Dermot Shea, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Jeff, thank you and stay safe. Thank you.
So I mentioned a little earlier about uh, masks and coverings that are going to be required on busy streets, but also on public transit. And that's going to bring me to my next guest, Sarah Feinberg, interim president of the New York City Transit System. Before that, she was a member of the MTA board, uh, and she's also the founder of Feinberg Strategies, a strategic business and communications consulting practice focused on the tech center. Obviously, the Transit Authority has been facing a number of unprecedented challenges right now, so I invited her on to discuss the latest developments. Welcome to WBAI. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So it feels like every day there's more news. Today there was uh, there were even more develop- developments. Can you give me a sense of how COVID-19 has impacted the MTA and the risk that your workers have been facing? Oh, I think the best way to describe it is that absolutely everything has changed. Um, not, nothing that, that was... Uh, uh, at New York City Transit a few months ago is the same as, as, it, as it is now. So everything has changed. I mean, we have been absolutely devastated um, by this illness. Um, the numbers are, um, are horrifying, which you've probably heard. We've uh, thousands of people who are, uh, thousands of workers who are out on quarantine. We have thousands of, of workers who have tested positive and um, far too many of our colleagues have passed away. Um, and so that has just had the workforce reeling. Um, but I have to say, you know, in, particularly here in New York, transit workers are first responders. I mean, people usually think of first responders as police officers, uh, as firefighters and paramedics, but transit workers are very much first responders in a place like New York. Um, and if it were not for New York City Transit and for the men and the men and women of New York City Transit, I don't think that New York would be able to fight this virus uh, the way that it has. So they are very much heroes, uh, but we have also paid a very steep a very steep price. And ridership is down. I think the statistic given today was ninety five percent. How are you adjusting to that? Uh, yeah, and I think it might even be down more. I mean, my, the ridership numbers I have from yesterday are about 420,000 people uh, rode the subway yesterday, and on an average weekday, more than 5 million people ride the subway. So that, that gives you a sense of it. Um, you know, so, so it's a very different system right now. It is a system that is the sole purpose of which is to um, move essential workers, to move the nurses and the doctors and the um, pharmacists and the grocery store clerks and and the sanitation workers and the city and state workers, everyone who needs to be moving in order to to be on the front lines fighting this virus. That's our sole purpose right now. And to move the the people who are running what I call essential errands, you know, who are going to a a chemotherapy appointment, who are going to a pharmacy to pick up a prescription, who are going to the grocery store to get some groceries for an elderly neighbor. Um, That is our sole purpose right now, and that's why we've been urging everyone else to stay home. So that means that ridership is is down, you know, to a point where I don't think New York could ever even imagine um, could ever even imagine ridership being. And and to recover financially, uh, if I'm correct, there were uh, new disclosures today about how much uh, the MTA is going to need to recover from this. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, what was announced this morning is our is our second ask of the Congress. So what we've basically said is in the next stimulus package that that moves out of Washington, we have um, estimated our need at $3.9 billion. So that's not just for New York City Transit, that's for all of MTA. So as you can imagine, when your ridership takes the hit that we just took, um, you know, it it means that you're, we're just hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging revenue. Um, and on top of that, 
We are doing more than we've ever done in terms of disinfecting and cleaning stations and cleaning cars, and so those costs are going up. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's hard to predict how long this is going to go on. I, you know, I think it's um, it's possible that that the Congress will have to come back at this over and over again, not unlike the financial crisis. Um, although I think most would agree at this point that we are in much worse shape than than during the financial crisis. Um, so, it, you know, it's possible that the Congress is going to have to act multiple times. And from what I also understand, uh, the MTA also announced that the capital plan uh, 2020 to 2024 is going to have to be put on hold until more of these federal funds can be provided. Are there specific projects that NYC Transit uh, has planned that will now have to be put uh, on hold right now? Have, Have they been identified or it's too soon? It's too soon. It's too soon to. T- it's too soon to to make um, those decisions. First of all, you know this this operation is working 24/7 to just try to give our workforce the support that it needs, the PPE that it needs, and to get our essential essential workers where they need to go. So that's that is an all-consuming activity at this point. And I think those decisions about capital program capital projects are going to have to be made down the road. But I think, you know, more important than, than what is going to be cut is what is going to stay, um, because I think it's incredibly important that we not we not let our eye get taken off the ball of some, some really important priorities. So, for example, you know, one thing that's very important to me is making sure that the system is accessible to everyone. So I'm going to be very hesitant to let you know, the projects that make uh, subway stations accessible to those who are in wheelchairs, um, I'm going to be very hesitant to let those be the ones on the chopping blocks. So there was uh, an MIT study that had come out on Wednesday that indicated that the subway system here was a, quote, major disseminator, if not the principal transmission vehicle of the virus in the city, and it faults the MTA for decreasing service. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, I thought the study was interesting. I mean, what it basically amounted to saying was the fact that the city was still operating when, um, or in early days of the of the virus, when we probably didn't under we the city didn't understand as much as as we probably could have about how much it was spreading, uh, was responsible for the spread. I mean, I mean to to that extent, I, you know, the fact that the city was functioning, the state was functioning, and that people were still going to work. Uh, is why the subway was functioning. And so I think, you know, look, I'm not an academic, and so um, I'm pretty focused on just running a transit system, not not writing academic papers. But I think what's important here is, um, you know, the fact that um, – the fact that the system was operating was because the city was still operating, and um, and it's pretty tough for the city to operate without a subway system. The reason that we reduced service was because we've had such a, a crew shortage, because we've had so many workers that are out sick, that are out on quarantine. It means we didn't have enough crews to run all the trains that we were um, that we would normally run, and to operate all the buses that we would normally run. So we did not proactively. Uh, cut service. We we did it in response to the fact that we had so many workers out. And, um, you know, I think uh, when push comes to shove, when people understand that, their understanding of, of our situation, I don't think anybody thinks that it's a good idea for us to, to have, um, have sick workers on the job. And I know we've got just a few minutes left. I'm really curious about how, you know, given the governor's uh, mandate per executive order that's going to uh, take effect, uh, that we all wear masks in public uh, spaces, when it comes to your workforce, are you facing shortages of the masks? Well, 
it, it, at this point, we're, I think we're in pretty good shape. Um, you know, this has been a frustrating. I think that, that this has been a frustrating experience for everyone. Um, you know, we we take planning for any contingency really seriously. Any any major transit agency does. So we have plans for snowstorms and tornadoes and and uh, or snowstorms and hurricanes and and strikes and all kinds of events, including pandemics. And we took planning for something like this really seriously, and we're prepared for it. What we didn't prepare for was for the CDC and for all of the medical experts to say, don't hand out your medical equipment. Don't hand out your personal protective equipment. Um, you know, we finally threw our hands up in the air um, several days ago and said, this just doesn't make sense. And we started handing out gloves and masks to all of our employees because it just made sense to us at the time. And, of course, the CDC has since, has since followed suit. Um, you know, we we early on urged our ridership to please be wearing masks and face coverings as well. If you don't have a mask, you can put a shirt around your face, you can put a scarf around your face, um, or some kind of cloth covering. And so it's not too much of an ask. I think the fact that the governor has now um, put that into an executive order is only help is only helpful to us. I mean, look, I think as I've been in the system every day, I got to say like 95% of folks are wearing masks. I think with the executive order, it'll go to 99%, and that's good for our workforce and good for all of the New Yorkers who are trying to stay healthy. And I do want to let our listeners know about something, an agreement that was reached that I think it's it's important for them to know about uh, the impact that it, this is having on families, that you reached an agreement with the unions uh, that the families of those who've passed away as a result of the virus are going to receive uh, a significant benefit. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, it wasn't just wasn't just with the unions because, of course, some of the folks that we've lost were, were not represented by unions, and their families will get the same benefits as well. But um, but but the agreement that was reached was that um, you know every every family that lost um, someone to this terrible disease will get a payment from um, the MTA in the amount of five hundred thousand um, dollars. You know that is. Um, you know, on our part, that is um, an effort to show how um, grateful we are for um, for the work of our workforce, for the commitment of our workforce, and for the sacrifice of, of these first responders. And if our listeners want to get more information on what the MTA and TA are doing, where should they go? Well, you should go to our website, uh, or they can follow us on Twitter, or they can um, follow us on Facebook, and and those and even on Instagram, and they'll get all all of our information there. Sarah Feinberg, interim president of New York City Transit. Thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you so much. So you are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. You just heard my interview with Sarah Feinberg, interim president of New York City Transit. So my final guest today is Congressmember Sean Patrick Maloney. He was supposed to be on a few weeks ago, but had a sudden power outage that day, and we were fortunate that former Governor David Patterson stepped in at the last moment. Representative Maloney represents New York's 18th district in the U.S. House of Representatives and had first been elected in November 2012. His district, like many of our districts, have been impacted by the coronavirus. I talked with him earlier today, and here's that interview. Welcome to WBAI. So 
A Harvard survey says that some forms of social distancing could be required now through 2022. What do you make of that? Well, I think we should probably take a breath. I, I, I do think we are in the absolute worst part of this crisis right now. And through a combination of uh, long overdue, better testing, vaccine development, you know, ongoing social distancing, working remotely, and um, hopefully the development of existing repurposed therapies, we are going to be better equipped to handle any resurgence of the virus. And so while there will be the normal for an extended period of time, I don't think it will feel like this. I, I think people do, do get to have some hope that once we get through the next few weeks and, and maybe a couple of months that we are going to be in a different position to combat the virus. You've done more than 100 town halls, uh, well, since you took office, and you held one recently uh, on preparedness and treatment. What are the main sentiments that are coming across? What are you hearing for people, and what are you doing to try to combat the spread of the virus? There's really two big areas of concern, and, and the first, obviously, is the ongoing crisis of the pandemic, enormous frustration that the president failed to develop an effective diagnostic system, national testing system early on. We're still paying a terrible price for that. Um, a lot of concerns around still, you know, the basics, how I get the virus, what do I have to do to protect myself? But increasingly, we also have a whole constellation of concerns around the economic crisis, people losing their jobs, trying to get unemployment benefits, trying to get small business uh, assistance, forgivable loans, and all these all these measures are in the pipeline, and they are they're pretty robust, but there's a lot of frustration getting access to the programs as they get started up, and we're hearing that as well. So, you know, we have, a, we have an economic crisis that is a result of a public health crisis. We have to address them both. You mentioned the federal response. It seems if you watch television, you read the news, you see that the president is basically uh, attacking the World Health Organization. He said it's very China-centric and that it's pushed China's misinformation. What do you make of the president's recent actions? Well, I, I wish sincerely that in the middle of this public health crisis that the president got his priorities straight. And, and the priorities should be doing everything necessary now to understand and arrest the spread of the virus to support our frontline healthcare workers in the capacity of our healthcare system and to combat the economic crisis that will grow worse the longer we don't get a handle on the public health crisis. And all this other stuff, all these theatrics, all this sort of shadow boxing, this blame shifting, this nonsense, um, aided and abetted sometimes, by the way, by, by our voracious people news environment and partisan divisions, is a distraction, and we all need to we all need to focus because you know I don't need to tell you as folks who live in Queens or in New York City there is an emergency going on, and I think people deserve to know their leaders are focused on the real problem right now. In talking about our leaders and how they are focusing, how would you compare the way the president has handled this versus the way Governor Cuomo has handled this? Well, the governor gets high marks, absolutely, and I would compare the president's response to, you know, what I think was the gold standard, which was the response to the Ebola crisis uh, led by President Obama and my friend Ron Klain a few years ago. And the reason people may not remember the Ebola crisis is that it was effectively 
handled. And in fact, Ebola is far more deadly than than COVID-19 and could have been an absolute catastrophe. We did have some outbreaks in the U.S., but it was effectively contained. So there is a playbook here, and it was out of that crisis, uh, even as effectively handled as it was, that, that the White House stood up really important procedures, staff, you know, a playbook on the National Security Council, because everyone knew there was a uh, the risk of a major pandemic emerging, and, and the Trump folks threw that away. And they, they really blew the response from A to Z, and it's a combination of arrogance and incompetence, and we're all paying a terrible price for it. I encourage our listeners also, and we'll get to your website where they can access this, but I encourage them to look at a document you issued in mid, mid-March, mid Leave No One Behind, COVID-19 Federal Response, outlines a number of priorities. So I just want to talk about a few that you identified, but I'm really curious what uh, among these issues so far have been addressed and what have not been addressed. Uh, I, let's start first with uh, the overall document. Can you just talk about overall what it uh, what it includes? Right. Well, you know, it's really a version of, of what I've been talking about. You've got a bunch of priorities around combating the public health crisis, universal free testing, paid family leave, making sure people uh, have the equipment and resources they need, that there is the, the full presidential exercise of authorities like the Defense Production Act to get the production of more protective equipment, critical machinery, the rest. But then there's the economic crisis. And the three most important pillars there, although there are more, but the, the three most important are the direct payments going out this week to tens of millions of Americans, uh, which is a lifeline for a lot of people. That includes seniors, by the way, and, and folks who are very, very vulnerable with disabilities and, and, and the rest. But also the other insurance benefits, which are now finally getting through the backlog of the state website system. The governor gets credit for surging resources there, so people should be able to get their claims heard and processed. They will be retroactive, so people won't lose any money. And, of course, the small business assistance, which is so critical. But then we also have a major priority around our health care system, supporting our hospitals and frontline workers. We need to do more there. We've done a good job of supporting our mass transit system, so all the folks who depend on New York City subway or Metro North, uh, those systems are down 95% in terms of the ridership but we are going to keep them running and keep them in good work and order for when we need them, uh, and we still need them for our healthcare workers right now. Uh, but then also, you know, our state and local governments are under enormous pressure. Uh, the governor's right to be flagging that. They need help. Uh, and then we have long-term economic stimulus measures that I personally think are critically important, if not as urgent, but need to be done right in the coming weeks, uh, which would include uh, getting back our state and local deductions in New York, uh, but also... Uh, major investments like infrastructure, we have a very good chance of getting a multi-trillion dollar 10-year package in a bipartisan agreement over the next month or so. That would have enormous benefits uh, for all of us over the coming years. So fight the short-term health crisis, bridge people uh, through the economic uh, pressure they're feeling right now, and then stimulate and grow the economy long-term. Those are the areas I'm focused on. And there are a few. I mean, this is not just one or two proposals. You really outline quite a number. There were a few that were of interest to me because I've been reading up on this, such as addressing issues that are important to veterans. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I represent a lot of veterans in the Hudson Valley. About 25% of my constituents are military families. I represent the United States Military Academy at West Point. Um, and, you know, the VA system is a critical 
uh, node of our healthcare delivery system in this country, and there are some very special and important needs there. So I represent the, the Hudson Valley Healthcare System, particularly uh, Castle Point, and making sure our veterans continue to get good care, that they get those that are in residence, are protected the way we're protecting folks in all long-term care facilities. Uh, it's really a priority. And, of course, we owe such a debt to our vets, and we've got to We've got to keep that debt by by not forgetting them in times like this. And and sometimes it's possible when we're designing on the fly major support programs for uh, you know to, to support our frontline healthcare workers at at our hospitals, at our physician networks, at our community health centers. Uh, you've got to you've got to address the VA as well, and you've got to understand the special needs there. And one other area that I do want to mention among all the priorities that you outlined, uh, education. Uh, we're hearing here in New York City, I mean, as much as there's a debate between who can, you know, keep the system shut down, I'm putting that aside. But as far as the needs, the educational needs of of the system, you know, where do you see this going? Because I, I can see this requiring a significant amount of funding if this goes on much longer. Well, if you're talking about education against the, the virus, I, you know, obviously we need to continue to educate people on what they're up against. If we're talking about our education system, um, there is significant resources in the first CARES package to support school districts directly, and that's important. And as part of our veto, state and local governments, you're taking as much of their Title I uh, funding burden off of their shoulders is one way to help. And I think you will see education continue to receive the support it needs. I'm proud that the governor and the state legislature held harmless uh, through the foundation aid, the school districts around the state, at least for now, but they are they are going to be only able to do that if, if they get the help they need from the federal government. So we've got just a few minutes left. I do want to not just focus on the coronavirus. We have a presidential election going on. Bernie Sanders has dropped out and endorsed Joe Biden. What needs to happen now in your view for a successful challenge to the president? Well, first of all, I mean, I have an enormous amount of respect for the way Senator Sanders uh, handled himself. I, I think it is really, really impressive that he stepped back, put the party and the party's nominee first, and 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 it is incumbent on all of us who supported the vice president to really reach out, to really welcome into a single team all of the folks who were working in different campaigns on the Democratic primary uh, in the process. And, you know, this is a conversation we need to have. We need to have a conversation about all of the ideas that Senator Sanders has so effectively championed. Uh, none of us has absolute truth. None of us has all the answers. And I think Senator Sanders has put so many things on the agenda that are so important, from universal health care um, and to make sure everybody has access to quality, affordable care, to action on the climate, to action on uh, so many other priorities around economic inequality in our country. I really hope that Biden... Uh, campaign, and, and, and I know they are, is, is really reaching out and really saying, we love you guys, we need you, we all, we all have to work together because we are, we are facing the, the greatest threat to, to our country that I've ever lived through on so many levels, and the pandemic has only cast in relief how much we need good, decent, humble, experienced presidential leadership. It is so absent right now. And whatever his faults, you know, I know Senator Biden, Vice President Biden, has enormous empathy and decency and will be reaching out uh, to all of us to say there's a better way forward. And and I think the fact that he's going to have more time to do it 
is a real credit to Senator Sanders and his supporters who are willing to start building a unified team now, months, months earlier than we did four years ago. I've got just about a minute left. I do ask every guest this, and I know uh, that you've got three kids, husband. How has the coronavirus affected you on a personal level? You know, it's such an interesting question. There's there's so many bad things going on, and there's so much suffering when you turn on the TV. Um, but I have to tell you, there have been some silver linings, too. As a member of Congress, you know, sometimes you just feel like you're on a treadmill. I'm constantly traveling. I'm constantly on the road, and I miss a lot of time with my family. And I have to tell you, we've spent an enormous amount of time together as a family. I think all of it has been pretty good. My kids might disagree, but, you know, just cooking at home, working remotely, doing a lot of projects around the house. Um, for me, the the treadmill has slowed down a little bit as I just basically focus in on my job using technology. And it does allow for a lot of extra time with, with my family. And I bet millions of Americans are experiencing the same thing. I can tell you I've got a lot more appreciation for teachers I'm trying to get my kids to do their homework and to learn remotely. Um, I can tell you that, that I have reconnected with them in ways that are that are really meaningful for me. And and it is it is hard to say anything, you know, good is coming out of this because there's so much suffering and pain. But I think you look for those sprigs of hope in, in springtime wherever you can find them and and hopefully we're all we're reconnecting with the ones we love reminded uh, of our common vulnerability and humanity, um, you know, and bringing our communities together across all our lines of difference. Um, that, that, that small bit of good maybe can come out of this terrible thing. Sean Patrick Maloney, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI. Hey, thank you, everyone. Stay safe. So today it's being reported that New York recorded 606 new deaths. That's the lowest 24-hour total in 10 days and brings that total to more than 12,000 at 12,192. Uh, the three-day average of uh, number of hospitalized virus patients also is down uh, by 2%. So these are just numbers. And when we talk about numbers, it kind of it removes us from thinking about the individual lives, who these people were, what they were about, how they were loved. Our correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, has been speaking with New Yorkers about how they're coping with this new normal and with the loss of loved ones. One such New Yorker is a committed public servant who's been a guest on our show before, New York City Controller Scott Stringer, who lost his mother. Here's that segment. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. Scott Stringer, New York City Controller. When I lost my mom to the coronavirus, she had been sick for the last few months. But once she got this deadly disease, it really was downhill. And she was a amazing fighter, a single parent, a former school teacher. She taught English as a second language to new immigrants. She ran for city council in the 1970s and actually won her election at a time when women were starting to actually win elections. It was always an uphill struggle for her. I remember when I was a teenager campaigning for her and voter after voter would say to her, why aren't you home taking care of your husband? And she would say, I don't have a husband. And and it went from there. And so we as a family mourn her loss greatly. She went to the hospital and they did everything they could, but of course it wasn't enough and she passed away. But I am very grateful to 
the EMS workers who took her to the hospital, think about the nurse who I would call during the day to see how she was, to the doctors who fought for her life. And they're doing this for not just, you know, my mother, but for mothers and fathers and grandparents. And I can't tell you, Celeste, how much they are the front responders, the frontline people who are the heroes of our country and our city right now. You can't have a funeral. In my case, you can't have a shiva. I can't see my stepfather because he's quarantined. I have two little kids, an eight-year-old and a six-and-a-half-year-old, and they don't know why we don't have a funeral, and they don't truly understand what's going on around them. And we're trying to talk to them and give them guidance. I tell them, and I'll tell everyone, there are better days ahead. We will beat this virus. Very comforting, even though there was no funeral. The messages I got from people, many whom I didn't know, uh, text messages, emails, Twitter responses, it really mattered to our family and to my wife. And it's very soothing. And I would hope that people are doing the same for others. You know, people think that it's all impersonal, but it's actually not. And I would really hope that people go out of their way when they hear of a tragedy or hear someone sick, contact that family member, contact that daughter or son. It is very uh, helpful and it's gotten me through this. Look, with this president, it's going to be pulling teeth to get the resources we need. It means we're going to have to step up all of us and fight for New York City. We also have to realize we're going to have to restart our economy. You know, I had said to the mayor, put money aside in all the boom years he had. After 9-11, after Hurricane Sandy, something always comes our way. And right now he's grappling with the fact that he didn't put away a lot of money and he didn't save like he should have. And we're going to have to recognize that going forward as we try to help the people who are most in need. This president should have acted as an adult relying on science and strategy rather than acting like the clown he has always been. I do think he has blood on his hands. All the people who are losing their parents and grandparents because he didn't understand what was coming his way. And I think that will be his legacy. My mother, like many of her generation, would say, don't agonize, organize. And there's no time to give up and throw up your hands. If my mother's passing is to mean anything, if the lives of the people who will not be here with us because of bad mistakes by our government, we can't walk away. I'm going to go do my job. That's what my mother would have wanted me to do. That's what she asked me to do every morning I woke up. And she would call with an opinion about Andrew Cuomo or this one or that one and what I should be doing. So I hear her voice and I know what I have to do. Scott Stringer is the controller of the city of New York. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. That was our Celeste Katz Marston. This is content you're only going to hear on WBAI. And uh, before I bring the show to a close in a few minutes, I want to thank 
our listeners for tuning in uh, every day as often as possible. I know we're stuck in the houses now a lot, and I keep the radio on all day, and I you know, I've not had the opportunity because of how often I have to work to be able to listen to WBAI so much. And I have to tell you, it's such a pleasure to listen to so many new shows. Now, Reggie's going to be upset because I'm not up at midnight for the overnights. Uh, I'm sleeping at that point. So I'm sorry, Reggie, uh, that I'm not able to hear you. But I also want you, if you are a listener to WBAI, to just Absorb the fact that we're staying on the air. We're adapting as everyone else is, but we need your help to be able to stay on the air. And so if you can, it would be wonderful if you could just take a few moments. Uh, today would be fantastic to just call our call center and make a pledge. Become a BAI buddy. Just donate as much as you can. As, as you know, any amount will help us. 516 3602. That number again is 516-620-3602. Remember, you're not hearing commercials. You're hearing our voices uh, in between the shows. You're hearing news reports. We're not corporate. We're not commercial. We're community progressive radio. We've been around for 60 years and we want to be around for 60 more. So if you get a chance, even go online to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org, and then click buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens up and follow the prompts it would be wonderful if you could just pledge a little today i want to thank reggie once again for making this show as seamless as possible and also i'd like our listeners to heed uh his uh call for everyone to sing new york new york later tonight he's going to give you those details between the show once again and also at seven o'clock to make sure to applaud cheer for our essential workers i'd like to thank today's guests uh that was nypd commissioner dermot shea sarah feinberg interim president of new york city Transit and U.S. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, and also Celeste Katz Morrison for her wonderful contributions to the show and station. I encourage you to visit us at WBAI.org to listen to all of her segments. Tune in this Sunday, 6 o'clock, uh, on WBAI for City Watch. My guest that day will be New York State Senator Julia Salazar and also Meredith Pescara from the Girl Scouts of Greater New York, who's going to talk about how the Girl Scouts are supporting our essential workers. And, of course, I will bring you another installment of Celeste's Coronavirus Diaries. And if you missed any part of today's show, go online to WBAI.org, go to Programs and Archives. The show will be up in just a few minutes. I wish you good health. Thank you again, Reggie. Good health in the coming days and weeks. Have a great day.